Well, amen, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, praise team, and thank you, Shelley, uh, for your ministries this morning. I, uh, over the years, 35 plus in practice, uh, watched infectious diseases sort of ebb and flow uh, during the course of the year, and um, usually summer was a good time, uh, and then kids would go to school, and they'd swap our little germs, and, uh, and then... The second half of September, beginning of October, was miserable. Uh, you'd have people uh, with, you know, fevers and cold symptoms and ear infections and all that kind of stuff. And, and then gradually, as, as the fall progressed, there would be a trailing off of those infectious diseases. And then kids would go to, um, to they'd go home for the holidays, uh, families would come and visit, everyone would swap germs, and then, um, and then the beginning of the year, usually in January, you had this big spike again uh, in fevers and upper respiratory infections and whatnot, and, and I hardly ever got sick. Uh, people would say to me, how is it that you don't get sick? And I would say, it's only by the grace of God. I probably said that a thousand times, um, but here I am, uh, and... <clears throat> I've been suffering for the last week or so um, with an upper respiratory infection. I think my immune system is getting out of practice. Um, but uh, so uh, thank you, Nate, for praying for me this morning. I have my water, I have my tissues, uh, and I, I think I'm prepared. I'm going to take a swig and we'll launch into this morning. Well, <clears throat> it's New Year's Eve. And uh, this day bears significance in a lot of ways. Um, for some of you, it's been a really good year. And for others, it's been a disastrous year. Uh, I'm really hoping that this morning's message will serve as an encouragement to all of us as, uh, as we gain some perspective looking back and looking forward. Um, I've chosen Psalm 51 as our text today. Uh, it's a lament written by David uh, to the choir master uh, after he had been confronted by Nathan. Now, those of you who uh, are children and who were given a children's program, you'll notice that there's a blank sheet there, and uh, on that sheet it says, Nathan confronting David. So you can draw a picture of maybe Nathan pointing his bony finger at, at David. Um, we're going to get to that a little bit later, but you might want to get started with that drawing right away. Um, so like David, I know that all of us have personally struggled with sin in this past year. And your loved ones have struggled with sin. And we are desperately in need of forgiveness, aren't we? Uh, our hearts yearn for reassurance that no matter how deep our sin, God's mercy is greater. We need to be confident that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our big idea this morning is this. When sin separates us from God, we shouldn't make excuses. We should run to him. When sin separates us from God, we shouldn't make excuses, we should run to him. 
As those of you who have uh, attended Word Partners uh, will attest, you've got to have context in order to understand a passage that you're um, studying. And context for Psalm 51 is critical. And that context is found primarily in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles and you would turn, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, that I think you'll find helpful. Most of you are familiar with this sordid tale of David. It's springtime and King David should be going out to battle with his army, but he chooses to stay home in Jerusalem. And it's evening and David gets up from his couch and he flips open his laptop. No, wait. Um, that's the wrong century. Um, oh, he goes out on his rooftop and uh, he looks out. And, well, let's pick it up there. Let's look at verse 2 of Second Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent his messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Well, David gets desperate at this point. He is really afraid that his sin is going to be found out. That reminds me of something my mother used to say to me. She used to say, Roger, be sure your sin will find you out. I thought she made that up, but she didn't. As I was reading through scripture some years later, I actually discovered that in the book of Numbers, Moses says that to a couple of the tribes of Israel. He says, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sins will find you out. So my mom was right. Kids, always listen to your mother. But I have digressed. Excuse me. Let's go back to David. So David is desperate to save face. So he devises a plan. He decides to ask Uriah to come home and spend a little time with his wife. You know, so Uriah will think that Bathsheba's baby is his baby. But Uriah, he is such a righteous man that he refuses to go into his house. In fact, he sleeps on the steps. And he says to David in verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So, David has to come up with a plan B. So he sits down and he writes a letter to his general, Joab. And he says this, Set Uriah 
at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. Now, how do you think David gets this letter to Joab? This is something I didn't see until I studied for this message. He sends the letter by the hand of Uriah. He so trusted Uriah, he had so much faith in this righteous man that he knew that he could give this letter to Uriah and he would deliver it to Joab unopened. He is using Joab, or he's using Uriah basically to deliver his own death sentence. David kills someone honorable to cover up his own dishonor. So, war happens. Joab sends word back to David. We're picking up now in verse 22 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David says to his messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Ugh, what a gut punch. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, God is a just God, and David has created a significant injustice with what he has done. So David, if he has any conscience, any sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, at this point should be tormented by this whole mess until he confesses and gets it right with God. But a long time goes by, and David is just under the oppression of his sin, separated in his ability to communicate with the God he loves. But there's a man named Nathan. Okay, kids, Nathan. Got to draw Nathan now. There's a man named Nathan, a prophet in Jerusalem, whom God uses to confront David. So he does it in a very effective way, storytelling. So he tells David a story. Let's turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he spoke to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. And then Nathan goes on to describe what will be the punishment for David's sin. King David has several options now in his response to Nathan's confrontation. He can make excuses and run, or he can take responsibility for what he's done and respond with humility and repentance and run to God. He wisely responds correctly. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. All of this is just a background. We've now set the stage for Psalm 51. So let's turn there at this time, Psalm 51. Now, 2 Samuel is a historical narrative. The Psalms are what? They're poetry, right? So poetry has structure. That's one of the things that sets poetry apart. And Psalm 51 has structure. And I've looked at a variety of translations. I've read a variety of commentators. And the structure of Psalm 51 varies from version to version, from commentator to commentator. Um, I've chosen to split it up into six different parts. Now, I decided to start each of these six segments with David's something that starts with a C. Now, I was told by somebody this week, please don't do that. That really triggers me. I hate it when preachers do that. Well, please don't hate me. I did it anyway. (laughs) So we have David's cry for compassion. That's verses 1 and 2. David's confession, verses 3 through 6. David's call for cleansing, 7 through 10. David's craving for communion, 11 to 12. David's commitment, 13 to 17. And David's conclusion, 18 to 19. Now, on the bulletin that you got this morning... On the back side, those categories are all listed for you. And you can take some notes if you want and fill in little spots. I always find that helpful. It helps me to pay attention. Let's look first at David's cry for compassion. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David pleads for God's mercy. What else can he do? Think about this now. According to the Mosaic law, David has committed two sins which are punishable by death. He's committed adultery and he's murdered somebody. These are two pretty awful things. And 
In verses 1 and 2, he describes these awful things in three different ways. He describes his awful thing as a transgression, as iniquity, and as sin. He asks God to blot out his transgression, to wash him of iniquity, and to cleanse him from sin. Now, these words are actually very significant, and we're going to look at each one of these categories and try to parse out what he means by this. A transgression is a crossing of a boundary. Now, in this case, the boundaries that David crossed are not some arbitrary man-made boundary, some line in the sand. This is a God-given thou shalt not boundary. Those two thou shalt nots were thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. So that's the word transgression. The Hebrew word for iniquity here literally means perversion or twisting. That kind of makes me think back to the Garden of Eden. Remember how Satan twisted the truth when he was talking with Eve? Let's look at that. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan takes truth and twists it. David did the same thing. He's king, right? So as a king, he's commander in chief. He can tell his army to do whatever he wants. Isn't that true? Well, no. Actually, not if what he's telling the army to do contradicts what God says, and God says, thou shalt not murder. Nathan's confrontation helps David to see the answer to this question is no. So we've discussed David's transgression and David's iniquity, and now he also describes his wrong behavior as sin. Now, if I were to ask you all, how do you define sin? there would probably be a variety of answers. And I can see gears turning right now as you think about the definition of sin. Well, the biblical definition of sin is missing the mark or falling short of the target. God defines the target. God defines the target. And our job is to try to hit it. The target is righteousness. The target is the glory of God. And we fall short a lot. David certainly did. So we have transgression, we have iniquity, and we have sin. And David pleads with God to respond to these three descriptions of his behavior in three different ways. He asks God to blot out his transgressions, to wash away his iniquity, and to cleanse him from his sin. In asking God 
to blot out his iniquity. He's asking God to supernaturally erase something that David has written in the autobiography of his life. That's what David is asking God to do. In asking God to wash away his iniquity, we have a picture of David being clothed in a garment that is filthy. He desperately wants God to wash his filthy clothes. He wants God to make him clean on the outside. By asking God to cleanse him from his sin, now the meaning is different than that of washing a garment. David knows he is also dirty from the inside out. So the Hebrew term here is more associated with with a healing. In fact, it's literally translated to make pure or clean. And it's often associated with the healing of someone who has leprosy. David knows he needs to be healed. He needs to be cleansed from the inside out. And he is pleading with the great physician to work a miracle. Sometimes, in medical practice, you treat two ways. You treat from the inside out, and you treat from the outside in. A classic example of that would be skin infections. And a lot of times, I would see someone with something like impetigo, with an associated cellulitis. And I would say, hmm, this I'm going to need to treat with an ointment and an antibiotic, because I need to treat it from the outside and from the inside. David here is asking for that kind of an outside-in and inside-out approach. Now, let's look at verses 3 through 6. We're going to delve now into David's confession. David says in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David, in verse 3, is formally recognizing before God that he has sinned. And not only does he confess to the fact that he has sinned, he confesses the extent of the impact on his daily life. He says, my sin is ever before me. And his next statement comes with a little bit of controversy. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Wait a second. You might be thinking, how can David say that? Hasn't he sinned against Bathsheba? Against Uriah? Against the army? Against the whole nation of Israel? Hmm. I'm glad you asked that question. So, in in attempting to actually interpret what David is saying when he says, against you and you only have I sinned, our minds seem to immediately go to the idea that David is saying 
that he hasn't really sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, etc. But that is not what he's saying at all. He is saying, rightfully, that God is the originator of what is right and what is wrong. It is God who establishes the target. So when we miss the target, we are sinning against God and God only. Without God, there is no right or wrong. Bathsheba didn't create the target that David missed. Neither did the army or the nation of Israel. It is God's target that David missed. If we get this concept right, the second part of the verse becomes clear, I think. The second part says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When we miss God's target, we are now subject to God's justice and judgment. We can't really argue the consequences of our sin when it is the right and just God who is making the rules. Let's take some time for a little practical application. The failure to understand that it is God who defines right and wrong has created all sorts of havoc in our society. Situational ethics, moral relativism, is the ruling mentality of the day. The idea that we can define for ourselves, dependent on our present circumstances, and independent of absolute truth, what is right and wrong, that is what has created the quagmire that we are in. Let's think about it for a moment. Slavery was based on the premise that people could be property, owned, bought, and sold. And perversely, there were those who twisted scripture to support that reasoning. And men used personal benefits of owning slaves to rationalize the practice. Situational ethics is also what is behind abortion and the justification thereof. Think about it. Oh, she is too young. Oh, think of the circumstances into which this baby will be born. Oh, she's a soldier. If, if she's allowed to carry this baby, it will interrupt her ability to serve her country. Or one of my personal favorites, oh, let's just put this baby out of its misery. Well, you know what? we can come to those kinds of conclusions because we have eliminated the idea that there's a moral absolute. God says, thou shalt not murder. We can rationalize it if we want, but it's not God's plan. God has established a standard. When David recognized his error, it caused him to pray Against you and you only have I sinned. Now we come to a couple of beholds. Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Once again, the Hebrew is a little bit difficult here. The NIV, I think, makes it easier for us to understand this. The NIV renders it this way, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David is not, let me tell you what David is not saying. David is not saying that it's my mom's fault, right? He's not saying that. He's not blaming his mother for the sinful nature that he has. Um, What he's saying is this. Every human being conceived since Adam was born with a sinful nature. And David was no exception to that rule. But despite that fact, God desires us to be obedient to his will right from the start. We really have no excuse. That we have a sinful nature at birth is really not a popular notion in our day. Uh, There was a news clip that I read recently um, regarding uh, uh, the press's response to our Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, saying this. He said, man is inherently evil and needs to be restrained. Well, that just created a firestorm. Man is inherently evil? That can't be true, can it? Does he really need to be restrained? I think so. (laughs) I think David would agree with the Speaker of the House on that point. Let's turn now um, to David's call for cleansing. It's part three of this six-part process. David writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So I have to be honest. Purge me with hyssop? For the longest time, I envisioned hyssop as being like one of those sponges that you clean yourself with, you know, it's, it's not that. Um, hyssop is what was used to paint the blood on the door frame during the Passover. It's also the plant that the priests used to sprinkle blood for ceremonial cleansing. The, if you turn to Hebrews, and let's turn there now, Hebrews chapter 9 verses 19 through 22. The writer of Hebrews, I think, helps us to understand this concept of hyssop a little bit. Hebrews 9, 19 through 22 says, For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Note this verse, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness of sins. I actually didn't know until last night that we're celebrating communion this morning. This is actually really appropriate, I think. David clearly understood this principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. His plea to purge me with hyssop did not refer to the use of some plant to scrub off the scum that was on the outside of his body. He is referring here to a cleansing of the heart, a forgiveness of sins. I think this undoubtedly foreshadows the ultimate blood sacrifice which occurred when God incarnate, Jesus Christ, offered himself for us for the forgiveness of sins. In this section, uh, David is once again calling for a three-part cleansing. And I I love the way David does this. He keeps cycling through uh, in the midst of this poem. And now we're coming back once again, and we're talking about cleansing. And remember in verses 1 and 2, he talked about blotting out, washing, and cleansing. This time he reverses that order, and he talks about purge, wash, and blot out. So um, the purging would infer some sort of a cleansing of his inner being, uh, a, a cleaning from the inside out. A wash would refer to a thorough cleaning of the outside, And then blotting out, once again, is the erasing of the record of wrongdoing. But David knows that there is a problem. Even with all of this damage control, David is still acutely aware of his sinful nature. And he needs, he longs for, a long-term solution to this problem that he has. His next request as I read this, left me stunned. He says, create in me a new heart, O God. Do you know that that word create is the same word as the one in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth? David doesn't want a cleaning of his heart. He wants a new heart. He wants God to create something brand new. He wants to be a new person. He wants to be one who is able to say no to temptation. One who is not enslaved to sin, but free to revel in the joy of his salvation. The newness here is critical. David recognized that his heart is unfixable. This is true of all of us. God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, says this. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will clean you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then Paul, he also recognizes our hopeless estate in Romans. Paul gets this. 
Paul, a Jew, understands the Old Testament, what David said, what Ezekiel said, and Paul kind of gels it together for us. And he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he says in verses 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, through Jesus Christ, is able to deliver us from our bodies of death. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. David wanted a new heart. If we are in Christ, we get that new heart as well. In addition to a new heart, David desires a right spirit. Now the word right here is the word steadfast or loyal, but it also literally means upright or erect. As one that is upright in heart, loyal and steadfast in his commitment and righteousness, David is able once again to commune with his God, with the lover of his soul. All right, that brings us to the next segment, part four, as I've divided it, and that's David's craving for communion. Verses 11 and 12 David says, cast me not away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. For David, close fellowship with the Lord has long been interrupted. He is pleading for fellowship to be reestablished. He asks God not to do two things, and then he asks God to do two things. First, how about the please do nots? He says, do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, to understand this statement, we need to look again at context. Thinking back to David's predecessor, King Saul. Going back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And then later in the same chapter, the writer recounts Samuel's encounter with David. Samuel took his horn of oil, anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers, And watch this now. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Do you think maybe that David is thinking back to Saul's plight when he pleads with God not to take his Holy Spirit from him? I think so. Okay, 
So far, we've examined David's cry for compassion, his confession, his call for cleansing, his craving to reestablish communication, and we are making progress. Let's turn now to David's commitment, verses 13 through 17. In this segment, David commits to God what he will do with God's help, with forgiveness, with cleansing, a new heart, with reestablished, unhindered fellowship, David commits to teach transgressors God's ways. And as the result, sinners will return to God. Well, here we are. We're studying Psalm 51. David is teaching us God's ways. And my hope is that as we listen to God's ways, that we corporately will seek God, will return to God. I do think that this psalm is an example of David's promise to teach. David commits this. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. How many psalms do we have where David does just that? And then we come to verses 16 and 17. These are huge for me. God is concerned for your heart. If you sacrifice, but your heart is not right, that is not going to cut it with God. God wants your heart. In disciplining and discipling our children, A focus on the heart was always our biggest effort. Sometimes we failed in that, but that was what we knew should be our goal, a focus on the heart motivating the behavior. So once in a while, we would find that one of our children wronged one of their brothers and sisters, and we would say to them, what do you say? And they would say, sorry. And you knew that they weren't really genuine in that. But once in a while, they were very truly sorry for what they had done. And they would express their remorse for their behavior and come to you repentant. And how, as a parent, would you respond to a child who has done something wrong and they come to you in that spirit of repentance? Your heart just goes out to them, doesn't it? It did for me. And I think God responds in the same way here to David. David comes before God pleading for mercy, recognizing, admitting that he's done something wrong. And God responds as God responds. I think it's important to remember once again that verses 16 and 17 are a, offer a contrast between David and Saul. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, shortly after Saul is anointed king, he messes up. He is supposed to wait until Samuel comes to offer some sacrifices. But Because things are not going perfectly according to plan, Saul uses situational ethics here 
he says, you know what? I'll just do the sacrifice myself. Well, that is not what he was supposed to do. And he gets confronted. He gets confronted by Samuel. And when Samuel confronts him, how does Saul respond to it? Does Saul say, you know what, Samuel? I have sinned against God. Nope. Here's what he says. 1 Samuel 13, verse 12. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You know, the one thing that occurred to me as I read this was that Saul's sin, on the surface anyway, seems to be significantly less than David's sin. I mean, would you agree with that? He, he, he offers a sacrifice. Now, it wasn't the right thing to do, granted, but he didn't kill somebody. He didn't commit adultery. But his response to confrontation was 180 degrees from what David did. David, with a broken and contrite heart, runs to God. Saul, in his pride, does just the opposite. He makes excuses to Samuel. And we all know how that ended. Well, that brings us to our final segment. Psalm 51, David's conclusion, verses 17 and 18. As I envisioned this psalm, I could see David's gaze. In the beginning, his gaze is downward. He has a broken heart. He's pleading for mercy. His gaze turns upward to God. Help me. And then his gaze turns outward in verses 17 and 18. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, I think David is speaking metaphorically here. <clears throat> I don't think he's talking necessarily about the physical building of the walls of Jerusalem. I think he's talking here about the safety of his people. And he's also asking God for the restoration of true worship in Zion. And of this latter point, David is returning to the law of Moses. It seems like earlier on, he kind of turns away from the law of Moses by saying, you don't delight in sacrifices. Now he's coming back. Well, yes. So sacrifices, when they are done with a right heart, are something that pleases you. And he says, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, etc. So, remembering our big idea, 
When sin separates us from God, we shouldn't make excuses. We should run to him. David is a man confronted with his sin. He recognizes the gravity of what he's done. He recognizes the hopelessness of his estate. He has two choices. He can run to God for mercy and forgiveness, or he can run from God and make excuses. Wisely, he chooses to run to God. He acknowledges his transgression, his iniquity, and his sin. And he recognizes God's authority. Against you and you only have I sinned. He asks God to purge him with hyssop. The blood of a sacrifice of God's own choosing to be clean from the inside out. He asks God for a new heart, for the ability to say no to temptation. A heart sustained with joy and a willing spirit. He commits to serve God, to worship God, and to praise God with a true heart. And then, casting his eyes over his kingdom and thinking of the nation of Israel, he prays for protection and for restoration of true worship. I'm a little like David, and I bet you all could say the same thing. We've all sinned against God in this past year, and we have two choices. We can run to God for mercy, or in our pride and arrogance, we can make excuses and run from God. Years ago, I asked God to create in me a new heart. If you haven't, I pray that you would.